And welcome to the When We Were Young podcast, where we take a look at the pop culture hits of our formative years, roughly 1980 to 2000, and see how they hold up now. Movies, music, TV, pure moods, and more. Nothing is safe from the withering gaze of hindsight. I am Seth Pearson, the podcast host most likely to have a new complaint. I'm Chris, your podcast host, most likely to be photographed naked in a swimming pool chasing after a stray dollar bill. (laughs) (laughs) That's accurate. I've been there. And I'm Becky. I'm the podcast host, most likely to choose Smells Like Teen Spirit at karaoke, but sing the lyrics from the Weird Al version. (laughs) That is also very true. (laughs) That is also absolutely believable. (laughs) Weird Al has come up more on this podcast (laughs) than he has in any other conversations in the past 20 years. I don't know if we even have to do a Weird Al specific episode. (laughs) Every episode is a Weird Al version. This show is by default kind of a Weird Al podcast. It is, yes. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we are never minding the muddy banks of the Wishka and re-examining the explosive one-band musical revolution known as Nirvana. We'll focus primarily on their smash hit album, Nevermind, forward through their final studio album, In Utero, and also briefly touch on the music that the band members created after frontman Kurt Cobain's untimely and horrific suicide. Spoiler. Spoiler, it ends badly. Spoiler, this is going to be a really depressing episode. This is going to be the cheeriest, most upbeat episode of When We Were Young. Pass the Xanax. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Distribute the antidepressants around the room. Give it some time to kick in. (laughs) (laughs) We're preemptively just stone face. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. First, we should touch briefly on the history of Kurt Cobain, who was the singer-songwriter, lead guitarist, and kind of animating voice of Nirvana, and then touch on the history of the band itself. Kurt Donald Cobain was born February 20th, 1967, and he was born in Aberdeen, Washington. His mom and dad got divorced when he was very young, and he spent really the entirety of his childhood kind of being bounced around from home to home um, between his stepmother, his biological mom, and his biological dad, and uh, other various relatives, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and never really had a stable home life. This obviously informs and was the kind of catalyst and environment in which all of his creative spirit came from. Uh, he like drew and made music and played guitar all from a very young age, and most of the people in his family didn't support him, but once he became a teenager, a friend introduced him to punk music, and it kind of gave him that feeling of an outlet and creative inspiration that he kind of describes as having, he kind of describes it as like punk finding him 
um, at the right time of his life. And so with that, he really first start, started to feel a sense of community with anyone uh, by going to punk clubs in the suburban Washington area. And eventually that led to befriending Chris Novoselic, or who was like a super tall, really gangly, awkward kid, similarly awkward in a lot of the ways Kurt was. And he was the bassist? And yeah, he was the bassist and they began playing <clears throat> they began playing music together. It took him a long time to settle on like a band name and all of that, but they were both just super in love both with punk music and then also discovering Led Zeppelin and a lot of heavy metal music and even from very early on they had a very explosive kind of cataclysmic um, sound, but it was both very rock influenced and very punk influenced at the same time. I have a question. Maybe you know the answer. Shoot. Um, did Nirvana kick off the grunge movement, or were they just part of the grunge movement in the um, early '90s? I think it's some degree of both. Um, I definitely would say that they kicked it off, like brought it to the mainstream, like it was already happening, and then they just yes, made it mainstream. Most definitely. And there were a lot of bands that were coming up around the Washington area, like Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. And some of the members who were very first in the earliest incarnations of Nirvana ended up playing like bass for Soundgarden, who did Black Hole Sun, which is a huge hit in the mm -hmm. 90s. Um, that scary video. Playing, yeah, <laughs> super wonderfully scary video. Still an awesome music video. Um, but they had a lot of kind of band members and fan bases in common. Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic met in 1985, and that's when they formed the band and recorded their debut. Bleach and released it on Sub Pop Records, and they had another drummer named Chad Channing, and I guess they went as far with him as they felt that they could, and then kind of just dismissed him. And then enter Dave Grohl. Enter Dave Grohl. <laughs> Chad Channing does sound like too chipper of a name. <laughs> like, a Chad Nirvana Channing sounds member. like a 50s cub reporter. Yeah. Like, Chad Channing's on the case. <laughs> Encyclopedia <laughs> Brown. Exactly. Is that what he did after he left Nirvana? He started a boy's detective agency? He did. <laughs> Which was almost as influential as Nirvana. <laughs> he kicked off the boy's detective agency movement. <laughs> they made the album Bleach for an insanely low amount of money. I think it was like... 600 bucks something oh, like wow. something crazy cheap and they got a lot of attention from that but it was definitely a lot more hardcore like punkish but in 1990 the band began working with producer Butch Vig on recordings for the follow up to Bleach now um, Butch Vig has worked um he's in garbage Butch Vig is in garbage like and garbage produces their albums yeah like garbage is a band comprised of like all record producers and Shirley Manson. Mm -hmm. um, but Butch Vig was like one of the mainstay producers of early and mid 90s, like alternative rock. So he's like a big deal. He's a gigantic deal. Um, and it was on those recordings, because Butch Vig is also a drummer, that they realized Chad was not working out. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, soon after that, uh, they dismissed Chad and. Um, a guy from the Melvins, which is another like hardcore punk band, who both uh, who both uh, Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic were kind of idolizing the Melvins. Uh, the the main guy in the Melvins recommended Dave Grohl to them, um, and that's when Dave Grohl came aboard with the band and kind of really solidified 
their sound and solidified them as kind of a, a united like power trio as as far as like a rock band. So it's 1990, and Sonic Youth, uh, which is widely recognized as one of the first kind of alternative rock, indie rock kind of bands, um, but they're also really punk-influenced and have a lot of like crazy distorted guitar effects and stuff. Um, but one of the songwriters in Sonic Youth, uh, Kim Deal, or no, not Kim Deal, Kim Gordon, uh, recommended Nirvana to a major label, which was a really big kind of decision point in the overall life of Nirvana's band. Also hugely con- uh, hugely consequential in terms of literally launching alternative rock and the grunge, what's known as grunge, uh, into the pop kind of mainstream. Um, It was kind of going out on a limb for David Geffen to sign a rock band like Nirvana because they were a whole lot closer to punks and the whole punk ethos was about rejecting any kind of corporate presence or any kind of mainstream attention-seeking for the music that you made. It was all about staying independent and true to yourself. So it was a really big decision on the band's part, but they always felt that they wanted their music to get into the ears and eyes of of the kinds of kids who needed that music, just like Kurt needed that particular kind of music when punk found him. So they signed to Geffen Records, and the resulting second album, Nevermind, is universally regarded as kind of a classic of early 90s alternative rock. And it does kind of epitomize what's known as grunge music. Just to briefly get into the album like and the sound of it, I'm not sure what grunge is or is supposed to be. Um, versus punk versus alternative. Versus punk or like alternative rock. But I, you feel like I, I know it when I hear it. Right. It's it's like how the Supreme Court defined pornography. They don't <laughs> they can't define it, but they know it when they see it. And it's usually associated with flannel and lots of distorted guitars and hard pounding drums and very melodic uh, screaming kind of intensity I'll, in the I'll vocals. tell you what I kind of think of when I think of punk versus grunge is punk to me, is, there's more of an anger and passion and energy there and grunge feels more apathetic and like more like depression than passion and, and like mm. fury. It's more like internal anger versus angry at external forces. I can kind of see that. I mean, to me... Like, I guess in terms of the sound, it's, like, grunge is just a little grungier, like, in terms of the guitars and the distortion and stuff. Um, Even, and, like, a lot of punk music has a lot more, I think, horns or something like that in there, or... That's not, no, that's not punk. That's ska. Okay, well... Ska's ska's very different. When I think punk, obviously, I mean, there's so many punk bands, but I just think, like... Sid Vicious and you know, um, right? Oh my God, what are they? Sex Pistols. Sex Pistols. Um, and grunge, I think Nirvana, yeah. and that's what I think of um, when I think of the difference between like yeah. those two bands that epitomize those music movements. Yeah, maybe I don't mean horns, but I feel like there's higher notes or something, uh, something that sounds a little higher in punk music, and grunge keeps it very like low and in the low same and kind earthy. of register. Yeah, I don't know enough about like instrumentation. At, I would have to, like, listen to a punk song right now to kind of, like, probably tell exactly what I mean. But I think there's something, like, 
lower and dirtier about the sound of grunge. But again, it's not. I think I think that's like I, I think it's totally arbitrary. Like I, I do, I really don't think that grunge is any kind of specific thing. I think it's one of those labels that got applied because there were, you know, uh, there was Nirvana, and then there were several other bands like Pearl Jam and Soundgarden who kind of hit big in their wake. Um, and I think that critics and the pop mainstream kind of required a term to be able to put on that, um, especially to differentiate it from the rock that was uh, kind of ruling the charts at the time, which was like hair metal, which was Aerosmith and that like kind of cock rock. Um, and I mean, Kurt's lyrics stand out to me like even now in how violently he rejected all of the kind of mainstream notions of masculinity and patriarchy and all the kind of male voice that ruled rock music and still kind of rules what we consider rock music now. But is that something that's endemic of grunge, other grunge bands, or is it really just Kurt Cobain himself? I think that's really just him. That's what I was thinking But that's why, and that's also why, that's also why I kind of think that Grunge is not a very, a particularly clarifying label. Like, it's not really something that tells you all that much about the music, especially when, like, his lyrics were so different than a lot of the other bands that came out uh, in their wake and were trying to ape them sonically. Right, like, with what you're talking about, like, rejecting kind of masculinity, that, I think, has a lot more to do with early punk and that kind of very much so um, like bands like black flag yeah uh like a lot of the dc punk and hardcore bands like fugazi um very explicitly like were were overtly political um on the left um and that is also but that's also like in reaction to what was in the punk movement another kind of big subset that was like skinheads and super right wing fat literal like fascists and neo nazis and white supremacists mm-hmm. um yeah when i think about punk music i think of like a certain kind of a brattiness it's like a in your face yeah it's like it's very like outwardly rejecting of a lot of societal norms and really confrontational Whereas I guess what I see the difference with Kurt Cobain is more, he obviously doesn't like a lot of these things, but it seems more like, kind of like you were saying, like being depressed about that rather than... Fighting the power. Yeah, exactly. It's like he's kind of given up, I feel like. Right, the apathy, I think, is a big deal. And I think that he wrote a lot of his songs knowing that the generation he was in was apathetic about a lot because it's Mm. in a lot of his lyrics. I don't know. I don't... I think he... I think it always gets conveyed as apathy, but I don't find him apathetic. I mean, sure, like, he's resigned about how little of his world he can change. I think he... I think there's a lot of resignation and defeat. Isn't that a version of apathy? No, apathy is not caring. Apathy is like, fuck it either way. I find that word applied to his music a lot. And I think in a way it kind of reduces the complexity of it. Like even, especially listening back this time to multiple albums in a row, like he does care about things, even if they're things he knows he can't change. Well, I don't think that it's in every song, but I think it's in a lot of songs. Yeah. Um, Well, and there's also a lot of really self-destructive. Yeah. What, what I mostly got away from listening to these albums this week is that I, Okay, and to just roll it back, I was 
nine years old <laughs> when Nevermind came out. So, and I think we were roughly all the same age. So this was definitely something that I was not in the movement <laughs> of mm-hmm. um, at the time. This was like an old, my older sister's thing. Uh, it was, she had her Nirvana albums um, and I just was not part of this grunge movement at all. This was definitely Disney Broadway. <laughs> um, so I think I missed a lot of what all it all meant at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I as going to it fresh this week, I can I can see why he was such a mythic figure and have has been a mythic figure for all these years because he is extremely complicated where in some songs he is very passionate and very much, you know, I care about this thing and then the next thing I think it is very apathetic and I think that in some songs he can be very blunt and the next song he can be very poetic. Um, sometimes even within and, the same song, sometimes oh yeah, even within, in the same line. Yeah, like, like sometimes he's exactly saying what he means, and the next line, it's, I have no idea what that means. Like, it's utterly confusing, I think, on purpose to be, you know, kind of um, an enigma. And I think that's kind of what he is. He's an enigma where, and um, I believe all three of us watched uh, the documentary Montage of Heck, and they did Which touch- is tremendous. I can't recommend it Yeah, it's on enough. HBO. Um mm-hmm. And they they touched on this about about how complicated he was because I think people think of him as being just this sad guy. I mean, he did, uh, you know, he had a tragic end to his life very early on at the age of 27. But, you know, there are moments when he was very funny. And there's moments where he loves his daughter, loved his wife, um, loved his his family. And then, you know, there are other parts where he tried to kill himself and other parts where he wanted to reject his band. And I just think... It's no wonder he's become this like cult-like mythic figure that he just, you know, there is no answer to who he was. Truly, Nevermind was released on September 24th, 1991. It became a worldwide giganto smash multi-platinum selling over 10 million in the U.S. and selling uh, 30 million worldwide. It defined the shape of rock music in the mainstream, but it caused a ton of conflict within Kurt Cobain and within the band as well. I mean, even down to the production and mixing of the album, Um, because Kurt was always very particular about the way that the songs and instruments would all go together. And even though they kind of were very persnickety and changed their mind a lot about like who should mix the album and who should master the album, they were Kurt was still unhappy at the end of the day with how Nevermind sounded. He thought it sounded like way too clean and way too um, studio perfect. Um, and so it, again, like it, it's funny how much that, album specifically in the way that it was recorded like totally set the tone the literal tone of a lot of rock music but its creator still was never perfectly happy with it at the end of the day in the way that it sounded um but again like really what was far more consequential for them was becoming worldwide mega celebrities like at the drop of a hat um the lead single from nevermind smells like teen spirit became just an absolute like it like I, I use the word revolution like on purpose. It is seen, especially in hindsight, as kind of sweeping away hair metal and sweeping away that really cheesy, schlocky rock music in favor of just brute, like raw force emotional honesty. 
So, Becky, you went over your experience of first hearing Nirvana, even if you didn't necessarily know, like, what all the kind of lyrical content was about. Um, I still don't. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Chris, when do you remember first hearing Nirvana? Uh, In April 1994, uh, which uh, I still remember. I pretty sure I was at my aunt's house um, the day that it was discovered that Cobain died. And I think we're going to kind of try and separate the music from more of the legacy and getting more into Kurt Cobain's personal life toward the end of this, because I think there's a lot to dive into with him personally and a lot to just look at with the music and kind of experience as people back then experienced, because... um, I know there are a lot of people who have a really deep personal connection to Nirvana and were there for when it came out. And we were all pretty young when that happened. And so I don't think any of us had the relationship with Nirvana that maybe is like the most typical relationship with Nirvana, where you think of like big Nirvana fans who like were there in 1989 or 91 when those albums came out and just loved him. And then, you know, had the experience of being so moved and transformed by this music and then watching the lead singer kind of destroy himself. I do have a, a small story that's related to that. Okay. My sister was 16. Her friend Sweet 16 was that night that he, you know, it was announced that he killed himself. Mm-hmm. And she was freaking out and my sister was telling her friend, it's fine, I, like, you know, everything's gonna be fine. We're all gonna be in party mood. And then she goes to the party that night and every single boy that's there is so sad. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. every single 16 year old boy is just depressed as all hell. And my sister at the time was like, get over it. <laughs> <'Cause> she, just, <laughs> she was a jagged little pill fan. No, well, I she, guess that was too early for Yeah, that. no, she had, she had a Nirvana. Cause I remember flipping through her albums and being like, oh, Naked Baby. Like, what's that album? Like, ooh, Dirty. racy. Um, so she, songs about naked babies. Like she had, she was a casual fan, but like I think yeah. if you are a sixteen-year-old boy in nineteen ninety-four, <laughs> um, that probably was the most crushing thing that could oh, yeah, happen. Oh yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so I guess my own personal history is like I, I'm sure that I had heard of the band Nirvana and probably heard something of their music at some point, but I really was not aware of who Kurt Cobain was until I saw that news report that he had been found. And I'm from Seattle, even though I didn't experience Nirvana at the time, because I was, you know, about 10 years old, I still kind of grew up in that culture without necessarily knowing it, you know, it's like I was surrounded by that grunge culture, even though I was too young to really get it. So it did really feel like a local tragedy, even though I know it was obviously a global thing for a lot of people. I I feel like I just kind of soaked that up a little bit without being too upset myself because I didn't really know who he was as I kind of felt that like angst around me. And it was really kind of a bummer. (laughs) I had a sense that this was a really big event, despite not really understanding it at the time. So did you listen to Nirvana after, like, finding out who he was? Well, so, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, I listened to 107.7 The End mm-hmm. in Seattle. Are you getting paid under the table yep. to promote that? Um, <laughs> no, but, I mean, that is the grunge station because it's in Seattle, and it was during the 90s. So they played Nirvana, obviously, a lot. So I started getting into that station probably when I was like 14, 15. Um, 
And so I never really sought out Nirvana itself. Like, I didn't ever buy a Nirvana album. I don't think I ever listened to any of these albums in completion. I only heard many songs on the radio. And I would I knew Smells Like Teen Spirit was Nirvana. And there were other songs that I was like, this is probably Nirvana. And then there were still more songs <laughs> that were not Nirvana that I was like... <laughs> This is probably also Nirvana. Like, pretty much any grunge, like any Pearl Jam, any Soundgarden, I kind of just put it in the Nirvana box. This goes in the Notvana. Yeah. And so it wasn't until their Greatest Hits album came out that I finally bought that. Because I was like, you know what? I actually really do like a lot of these songs. I think the reason I maybe didn't pursue them is just because I heard them so many times growing up that I just didn't need to buy an album. Because... There was like six or seven or even maybe more singles that were playing constantly throughout my teen years. So I didn't really need to like pursue them. But when I finally bought their greatest hits, I was like, I had a revelation (laughs) and I was like, I was really excited and I wanted to just like proclaim to everyone. I was like, you guys, I found this really great band. (laughs) (laughs) Like Nirvana is super talented. This Nirvana gentleman has really got it going. I'm sorry, what point in your life was this? How old were you? Like college. (laughs) Last Okay, college. I mean, it was not like I didn't know that Nirvana was a great esteemed band. I didn't think that I discovered them, but I did personally for myself discover them at this moment that was... At least, like, 10 years too late. You're like every kid who has a Beatles phase. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Guys, did you hear about this band called the Beatles? Aren't they great? Yeah, and I, even at the time, I mean, I I think I wrote something on Facebook back in the day that was something about this that was like, I know this is not a breaking news alert, but Nirvana is pretty great. So it wasn't until that I actually had that greatest hits that I kind of looked at what songs were actually Nirvana and then was able to hear something like Black Hole Sun and be like, ah, not Nirvana. <laughs> Not on my greatest hits CD. <laughs> they do have songs that exist that aren't on I know, the greatest hits. <laughs> I nope, pretty sure they don't. Pretty it was, sure it was I mean, I think hits, I, top to bottom. I even learned to kind of identify what Kurt Cobain sounds like, whereas I kind of had just associated all grunge with Nirvana because I didn't. I knew the names of like Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, but I never yeah. could differentiate what. Like, I, all grunge was Nirvana to me. Like, that's... Mm-hmm. And in a way, I kind of still feel that way. I know that there's a couple of other bands that are very famous as grunge bands, but it still kind of feels like Nirvana was grunge mm-hmm. I, in a lot of ways, I think. When we were preparing for this episode, I kind of put it off for a really long time because I knew it was going to be challenging for me um, because I have a very carefully avoided learning too much about Kurt Cobain and Nirvana itself because I have always preferred this kind of mythology. So I'll get more into that when we do like the last segment about Montage of Heck Mm -hmm. and Cobain himself. But writing my notes for this made me think, I was like, I'm probably going to sound nuts during this episode. (laughs) So (laughs) you have that to look forward to. And so so I'll, I'll go into my like personal history. I first heard Nirvana like I heard jock jams and so many of the other tunes that was smells like teen spirit on jock jams or rape me (laughs) (laughs) that was on jock jams volume two no uh in in summer camp um listening to friends walkman is it walk walkman walkman how many walkmans were walksman Attorneys General. Um, male and female friends of mine who I went to summer camp with would bring CDs like Jock Jams or 
Nevermind or Tragic Kingdom. And all, none of those things are alike at all. <laughs> right? Not, no, they are very, very disparate. In a way, I was really lucky to have that because, again, as I've discussed in the show before, like my musical tastes were very limited, um, even at that age. Um, but I, that was when I started to get exposure to a lot of different kinds of music that I'd never heard before. And the like the screaming and the ferocity of his voice was one thing that like immediately stood out to me. I loved the distorted guitars and I didn't become like a super huge Nirvana fan even at the time. Um, and I didn't really listen to the full albums the whole way through until high school. I do remember learning about when he died, like on the day he died, and a lot of my friends being really, really fucking sad. And they weren't even teenagers yet. Like they were still like, we were like pre-adolescents at the time yeah. still. Um, wow, that's Yeah, I was early. still listening to Beauty and the Beast when other people were into yeah. Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah, he was also one of the first people who was like a mythical figure of pop culture to me and to the people in my life and my peers at school like and again even though my taste in music wasn't kind of careening toward that rock world quite yet it was still like one of the groups that leapt out at me really early as being great and then later on like years down the line still before high school though my cousin put on their live CD. Nirvana released a live CD later on, actually after Kurt died, called From the Muddy Banks of the Wishka. So I heard them playing a lot of the songs that would later become their greatest hits. Like the first versions of those that I heard were live. And they are as ferocious as they are on record. It's like even that much more amped up and like propulsive in a live setting. And it was interesting because as much of a reputation as he has for being apathetic or or grungy or any of those kinds of words that we associate with them, he was very much a perfectionist like in in getting in trying to get the exact sound he wanted in trying to play right like and and practicing hours and hours and hours on end like to to get the guitar parts right, to get a singing right. Yeah, he worked really hard to make it sound like he didn't care. <laughs> yeah, he worked, it, like, he was really dedicated to his craft. World's first tipster. <laughs> <laughs> In many ways, yeah. And I, just to go off kind of what you said, because it reminded me, is, like, when I had heard that he died and there was this big sense of mourning, as I, I remember just having the sense that I had missed out on something. Like, I remember mm-hmm. being kind of sad that I just, that I wasn't, sad you know that I wasn't that I was like I didn't know who this was and but I could tell from everyone else's reaction that I had missed something really monumental and it made me I think sad but also like a little bit scared to revisit it Mm -hmm. because people were so upset that I think in a way it felt like a trauma to even go back to it and I think that that has really carried over in how I stayed away from finding out too much of their personal history it's, I'm go- going off of what you were saying. It's interesting because I I did own their MTV Unplugged. That's the only album I owned, and I do love it. Um, beautiful acoustic performance. It's absolutely stunning. Um, it's stunning. And um, but that's really all I knew besides the singles. I don't really have a a history of Nirvana, but I think one of those like Facebook quizzes a few years ago was going around like where in history would you go back to if you could go back for a night? And I thought to myself and I was like, I would go back to a Nirvana concert. Mm -hmm. Um, 
even though I'm not this huge Nirvana fan, but I love live shows and I really feel like maybe maybe Queen or Nirvana, but oh, like man. the the yes. live um maybe they could if you're melding time already, <laughs> maybe they could just play with each other. Right. <laughs> maybe not at the same time, but you know, like Queen first then Nirvana. Yeah, yeah. Um but I just always <laughs> thought like can you? I can't imagine the energy that would be at one of those um, Nirvana concerts at the height of their fame. Yeah, I can't like just being in that environment would be amazing. Oh yeah, and I well, still and, feel and that they way. totally like picked up on like the pop culture or uh, they picked up on the punk aesthetic of like beating the shit out of your guitar at the end, like throwing your guitar, your bass into yeah. the kick drum, like, like you know, knocking like, over an amp. Every show would be different. There would be a different energy every show. Something different would happen. Like it'd be unpredictable. So I actually like kind of want to dig into grunge a little bit more because like we were all kind of having a hard time exactly defining it. And maybe there is no definition. So, Seth, I was wondering if there is a non Nirvana grunge song we could like listen to for a minute and see if we can kind of like parse out the difference and where Nirvana lies in there. Sure. Let's think. First, we'll listen to Pearl Jam's Alive. Uh, and then we'll listen to a song by Mud Honey. Sorry, I didn't see him, but I'm and now we're going to listen to Let It Slide by Mud Honey. And so that was Let It Slide by Mud Honey. Uh, and Mud Honey are also often referred to as kind of the, the band that really defined grunge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you really hear that in this song, especially um, both in terms of the really distorted guitar and like the arrangements that were kind of everything is very distorted. Um, also, like really shredding, uh, screaming vocals, uh, also paired with kind of more another person singing the same line in a more melodic way um also it really reminds me just of other nirvana songs like there's there's a song called breed on nevermind and this this Mm -hmm. song is very much in line with that yeah i mean i can definitely hear how this is similar to nirvana and yet this also like if i just heard this song i'd probably call it a punk song Mm -hmm. so i'm developing a theory that grunge is just nirvana (laughs) and everything else is some combination of heavy metal punk and rock that people that because nirvana was so distinctive that it needed its own name and then other people got grouped in it because when i listened to pearl jam i was like that doesn't sound any different to me than a lot of other rock songs and it's like i can understand how it's like slightly similar to nirvana but it really doesn't feel like it belongs in the same box at all in fact to me that's part of why i've never really loved pearl jam in the way that a lot of my friends who really loved pearl jam got into them i really agree with you i think eddie vetter has a really compelling good voice like lyrically he's not like macho but his voice is super macho Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of easy to make fun of in a way because it's so (laughs) macho 
Uh, <laughs> there you go. I knew exactly what yeah. it was. I think it's easier to define the grunge movement than it is grunge music. Absolutely. For sure, yeah. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction, too, is that punk had it very much its own aesthetic that was slightly related to what later came with grunge, but wasn't exactly the same thing. Like, punk was very, you know, like a lot of leather and spikes and... Bright colors. Yeah. And then grunge was very, almost the opposite of that. It was very flannelly and, like, very loose clothing. Subdued. And, like, holes in your clothing. Sometimes, like, Kurt Cobain had holes in a lot of his sweaters. and Like, if you just, like, look like you woke up out of bed. Exactly, like putting a lot of effort into looking like you don't <laughs> give a fuck. It takes more effort to find a sweater with holes in it than it probably does to find one without holes in it. <laughs> I, I definitely agree with you. I think you can definitely look at fashion from the early 90s for a lot of people and say that was the grunge look. The grunge sound, yeah, is a lot harder to define. And at least from my personal definition, I'm kind of just going to stick with Nirvana is grunge. And then <laughs> everything else is just everything else. Yeah. And, and really, I don't I don't think there's any part of that that I can disagree with. Like, it's it's really true. So now that we've sampled some of the other grunge music of the era, let's talk about listening to Nevermind as a full album and our favorite songs that kind of hit us the hardest from the album. Um, Becky, do you want to go first? Yeah, just as an, in general listening to this album, I liked it, but it was very depressing. <laughs> I felt very depressed not just only listening to Nevermind, but in utero. Um, I felt like I was intruding on somebody's private journals, like the journals that Kurt wrote that um, are animated in Montage of Heck and that are actually in a book you can buy. Um, it felt like I was reading that set to music. Like it really did feel like I am intruding on the very disturbing thoughts of somebody who needs help. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you guys had that kind of feeling, um, but it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. Yeah, I mean... I definitely agree with you that it feels very personal and singular in that it's really hard to define them by any specific quality because sometimes they're very kind of poetic and very visceral and other times they're almost banal but not stupid but they're just they can be very basic as well and yet they all feel really um revelatory in a lot of ways I think it just they sound different than anything else like I, I don't get a sense that anyone else could have written these songs or mm -hmm. created this music. Like, as much as I thought that a lot of other bands were <laughs> Nirvana before I really understood Nirvana, now it's it definitely feels like a very, very singular point of view, even though it doesn't seem like it's about any one thing or... And also, even though it's synthesizing elements of so many other forms of music and so many other eras of even guitar pop music, like Nirvana weren't the first people to use distortion pedals. They weren't yeah. the first people to use like chorus pedals, which is the sound that kind of defines like Come As You Are, that defines just a lot of Kurt Cobain's guitar work, like other bands like Sonic Youth and the Melvins, like they, they used these guitar effects. But again, it, it's really kind of amazing. Uh, and I don't mean to step on your sharing of it. Like it's it really is amazing. And it stands out so much to me how much Kurt Cobain is synthesizing, like bringing together musically so many things in that one statement and still having it sound so singular and unmistakably Nirvana. Yeah, it's. I find it very hard to pin down, like, 
I feel like there are certain bands you could kind of say, well, they sing this kind of song. And this is more, it really does kind of feel like he's the voice of a generation. And it feels like the subjects of the music are much larger than he is, which I think is not the case with very many musicians is they tend to sing from their experience. And I don't really feel that most of these songs really are his experience. I mean, we'll probably go into some that are more specific, but it really kind of feels like he's taking on like all of the angst of that generation and that it's just kind of like being channeled through him. Like we'll get into this more when we talk more about him, but I don't see where this music comes from when I look at his life. Like there's so much about his lyrics that I don't necessarily see when I look at the man. Hmm. I mean, I don't know if I a hundred percent get that because I feel like he is, I mean, he was a messed up guy and these, a lot of these lyrics are kind of messed up and come from like, a lonely, angry, sad place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that he did take on different personalities. It wasn't always his experiences. Like he would go into a character often when he was writing these lyrics. Mm-hmm. So let's start with Smells Like Teen Spirit. Obviously that's the number one song I think most people think of when they think of Nirvana. Um, I think it definitely still holds up. It's not surprising a whole generation of people really tapped into that song. It is such like a headbanging, energetic, sing-along kind of anthem. I don't know if this is embarrassing or not, but I still like had absolutely no idea what he was saying besides the line, here we are now, entertain us. Um, I did look at the lyrics and I was like, oh, that's what he's saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After all these years, <laughs> I had no idea that the line was, with the lights out, it's less dangerous. Yeah, yeah, here, really. we, here we are now, entertain us. Had yeah. no idea. But uh, but I feel like just the fact that you can understand when he's saying that one line and the, the, the reason that he's saying, here we are now, entertain us, it feels very... Um, like a like an anthem for people to sing along to and, you know, be angry or uh, frustrated or, you know, just like all sing it together. Well, and I also think, though, that it's a, it also contains a, a criticism of fame. Mm-hmm. And even though they're not even in that position of being super famous as a band at the time that they're releasing that song, it feels to me like it's also got a criticism of fame where he feels like someone who's a performing monkey who's just doing what he's told. Yeah, I definitely get that, that he's writing it from the perspective of what he thinks his fans, like his what he imagines his fans are thinking. Like, yeah. oh, you're Nirvana on stage. Give us what we want at, at any cost. Yeah. Yeah, and this was even before, like, really the height of their fame because this was the song that really catapulted them mm-hmm. to that level of fame that was bigger than like early success like they could have been forgotten after that first album but like this was like 
iconic. But they got catapulted to fame not just because of Smells Like Teen Spirit as a single, but also because it was played on MTV as a music video and just really launched them into pretty immediate superstardom. Yeah, there's just something about that video. It's still really magnetic and compelling and very, it's just so iconic. It's like, of course, like the cheerleaders and the stands and the, like the head, you know, head bashing and like moshing. And And it's also like in a time in a historical moment where kind of everything that has any staying power is referred to as iconic, like everything about that fucking song is iconic and everything about that music video really is as well. Like it's so emblematic of that time and that place. And even just the literal like two note thing in, in the verse of smells like teen spirit, the don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, even that immediately... Oh, like, the first few know. lines? I bet you 100% of people could could pick the song out because of baum, ba out like, Yeah, exactly. Like, right yeah. Yeah. Or that part, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it makes me wonder how much of it could be calculated. Because I feel like when you're... If you try and make something iconic, like, you're probably going to fail. Because, mm-hmm. like, that's just not how those things happen. And yet, like, everything about this song feels like it was specifically calibrated to be like the anthem for generation x so like starting with the title um i looked this up but i guess the title was um something that someone said about kurt cobain he they said he smells like teen spirit which was a female deodorant i think they were trying to infer that he smelled like his girlfriend at the time because it was a female deodorant Yes, but he didn't know that. He didn't know for months that Teen Spirit no. <laughs> was a de- deodorant. And so he took it as, like, Teen Spirit in this more broad sense of, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what I think the video kind of mm-hmm. is like this. All these teens coming together, you get this sense, and that they all have this one energy and rage and spirit to them. And yet, that's not what it is. But <laughs> but the video and the title of that and the fact that it's entertain us, it's not entertain me, it all f- feels like he's trying to position himself as almost like the prophet of this generation. And yet I don't necessarily know that he was trying to do that or that the video was calculated with that, but it just feels so perfectly done to do that. Yeah, it seems like he doesn't want that and he doesn't condone that, but that's what he thinks is in the minds of his fans, that they want a prophet to, you know, mosh to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did know the lyrics to this song because I had looked them up at some point when I actually discovered who Nirvana was. But the one line that I didn't remember was a mulatto, an albino, a mosquito, Mosquito. my libido, which I love (laughs) and yet kind of probably means virtually nothing or like maybe it means something. But I don't think there's any way that you could deeply assign a meaning to all of that. You could try. You could try. (laughs) But I don't think that you could say, ah, this is what he meant. Definitively, no, I don't think you could. And then just, yeah, to like call out some more of the lyrics, is like the name of the album, Nevermind, just comes from this line, oh, well, whatever, nevermind, which speaks to what I was saying earlier, is like some of these lyrics are really banal, and yet like they feel very powerful and meaningful, even though, oh, well, whatever, nevermind, is not a profound thing to say, but somehow the way that it's used in this song feels very knowing. Even when Kurt makes like the lyrical choices, like the mulatto and albino, like it's... They're at least like images that suggest or hit the ears in a certain way and mm-hmm. are visually kind of interesting. Like, it's he's you can tell that he's very deliberate, but also like always really has this focus on 
economy, like uh, using as few words as possible to get across what he's doing, which is like a trope of pop songwriting forever and ever. In retrospect, it does look like it was calculated to be the voice of a generation, but also I totally agree with you that it couldn't have possibly achieved what it did if he had set out to make it that way. Exactly. Um, And I mean, in Montage of Heck, which we'll go into a little bit more later, like his mother, like he played the cassette of the master tape of the album for his mother. And she like told him, you are not ready for this and what this is going to do to your life. And I mean, it's clear that he absolutely wasn't. Yeah. I mean, that part of the, documentary was so interesting just because it was like if you show your mom like a song that you made she's probably gonna like it more than most people would or at least like support it just because it's like it's your mom she loves what you're doing but to be someone's mom and hear that song and just know like what was coming was just so interesting that she Mm -hmm. like heard that the very first listen that this wasn't a song that took multiple listens to kind of grow on you and I like I feel like if I had lived well, I was alive, but if I had been of age to hear this song and heard it in 1991, I think I would have instantly responded kind of like that, too. The song has been in pop culture, like pretty relevant in pop culture for a while after its debut. Um, it was in Moulin Rouge, it was. you might remember, um, during the Can Can sequence. <laughs> Uh, it was recently... Um, How co- many times did Kurt Cobain <laughs> roll over in his grave <laughs> when that happened? Um, it was uh, covered in the Muppets movie in 2011, The Muppets. Uh, Still rolling. Still rolling. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, uh, in the... Oh, here's one he's going to roll over. Uh, the 2015 film Pan. Uh, oh, Hugh, that's right. Hugh Jackman played uh, Blackbeard. What? I didn't see this movie. Um, I thought he was like Captain Hook, but no, he's just Blackbeard. And he sang, he sang, he sings uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah, there's a musical (laughs) number in it. I haven't seen it either. I actually really want to see it for this reason, because some critics are actually like, this movie is so nuts that you like just have to watch it. Yeah, well, I don't know if I want to do that, but it was in that movie, so (laughs) Um, it's, it's interesting how the grungiest grunge song gets parodied um, oh, and of course, the Weird Al version. Um, it's become this pop, iconic pop song that gets covered all the time. And I'm sure there'll be more covers in the future. I don't think it's going to go away. Which is strange because all those covers are not anywhere near like the spirit of music that Nirvana actually is. Like they're all very poppy. And I mean, I think that the lyrics like Here We Are Now Entertain Us kind of lend itself to being right. poppy. And yet Kurt Cobain basically hated this song for being so successful. Yeah. And like re- would refuse to play it at most shows. I mean, I think we were talking about this with Now That's What I Call Music and some of those songs that were really popular, like um, the Harvey Dangers and that and Everclear too. And that they these songs get popular and people kind of start impressing their own ideas onto what you are. And it you just become like a pop culture fixture. And the rest of your music is forgotten and what you actually meant by this is forgotten. And I think in the case of this song, like if it can be used in Moulin Rouge, like that's definitely very, very divorced from whatever Kurt Cobain was actually trying to say with Mm -hmm. this song. So I think you can understand why he was frustrated even more so after his death, how this song has been carried on is, is kind of like, yeah, that's really not what you wanted. (laughs) Well, but it's also interesting because he was really aware of that even very early on Mm -hmm. and like there are clips and montage of heck and also i watched clips of other uh interviews with him and he like when when asked directly about like what he's meaning and what he's intending in the songs he's saying like 
well, no, like, what what do you think it's about? What does it mean to you? Like, how do how does that lyric like strike you? Like, what meaning do you get out of it? Um, so it was really interesting because I think there were a great many ways that he was not prepared for fame. Um, but it was also kind of interesting to see how aware he was of what fame would do, especially as far as how he would be taken no matter what he was intending to say. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, I think there's so many things about him that are very contradictory and that one, he doesn't want to be famous and he wasn't ready for fame. And at the same time, he was prepared for fame his entire life and definitely wanted to be famous like in certain ways he wanted to be well respected well regarded he wanted to touch people well and he wanted his work to be really respected yes. i yeah. don't think he ever wanted to be famous but i think he, he wanted was... his mu- he wanted to be a musician and, exactly. and make a living off and, of being and a great that. musician and yeah. seen as that and then that's what he got um, and then he didn't like it. so it's just like it's all these layers of contradiction i think he would have been miserable if his music had not taken off at all and he had this great album and everyone just was like oh fuck that mm-hmm. whatever we don't like it you know like that wouldn't have made him happy either so it's like what did you really want there's probably not a good answer to that like there was probably no scenario that would have been like the perfect level of fame for Kurt Cobain yeah one of the other songs that I like off Nevermind is In Bloom Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it has a similar point of view to Smells Like Teen Spirit Um, in a way so the chorus is uh, he's the one who likes all our pretty songs but they don't know what they mean He's the one. It goes on like that. And it's kind of, I mean, the way that I interpret it is that it's about the crowds of people at their shows that are singing along and they have absolutely no idea what he's even singing about. Mm -hmm. And they are just going along with it despite the fact that he, uh, they have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. And it's kind of a, a cynical point of view, I think, of people that think that way. Yeah, it's, I think it speaks to his kind of contentious relationship with fans and that in one hand he needs them and wants to reach them, but there's a certain level of appreciation that he doesn't like and then kind of rejects being worshipped or, I mean, definitely he was pretty worshipped after, you know, like at the time that this album came out um, and after his death as well. The song again uses like it's he and us versus I like there are certain songs where he's talking about I a lot of them are storytelling songs where he's not actually speaking as Kurt Cobain but I I think this again sounds very anthemic because it's about music itself it's about music culture it's about his fans Mm -hmm. and all and and fame and being misunderstood yeah, well, and I'm looking at Genius.com, which has some, like, interesting kind mm-hmm. of 
a lot of fan-contributed commentary, but also kind of attempts to break down lyrical meanings. And their take on it is also more toward, like, the Kirk Bing saying he doesn't like rednecks and doesn't like kind of macho men and machismo. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely a part of, like, what he's rejecting in the lyrics. Like, the verse is like, and he likes to sing along and he likes to shoot his gun, but he doesn't, but he don't know what it means. Yeah, Um, so it's it's definitely specifically a critique of, like, ultra-macho fans of his, which... I mean, those people probably really liked Smells Like Teen Spirit and Nirvana in general because it it is very angry and aggressive and masculine in certain ways. But it's also like the the very first line of the song is sell the kids for food. (laughs) It's like this is not the first line of what like any of those other bands would write about. It's a really pop poppy song. It's such a poppy song. The music video is fun too. I love the music video is them like on the Ed Sullivan show, in, like right. black and, and white. And Kurt's dressed like Buddy Holly. Yeah, and, um, and it's I just I I like that. Um, you know, it's very fourth wall breaking. You know, him talking about his own music and his own fans. It's poppy, but it, like just the way that he sings in the chorus is also very raw and ragged. So it's like even though it's poppy in a way, there's a certain ugliness yeah. to it. And then I also noticed that this is the second song in a row on the album that mentions guns. In uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Load Up on Guns. is First line, yeah. Oh, Come As You Are. Yeah. I Don't Have a Gun. Yeah, I was going to mention that when we yeah. got there. Yeah, that's that's going to be my next song. Like, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not subtle. I mean, it, it's crazy to think. I mean, again, it, it's like, I know that this was not intentional. But right. given Kurt Cobain's legacy and how we know that he died, it is so scarily appropriate that the first line of this album is about guns and that the first three tracks are all about that and that it's just like it's right there staring you in the face like it almost feels yeah. inevitable what's going to happen and- in a way and but I, I i do think that a lot of that is just what our brains do to try to make sense of senseless things after they happen, you know, because in this, to me, at least the way that these lyrics strike me, guns are used more to refer to the empty tools of power that men, especially macho men, Mm -hmm. use. Like, it's a symbol of power, not in the sense that that Kurt or whatever character he's inhabiting wants to use them. Like in this, if anything, it's more that guns are like a tool that he's specifically rejecting. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that's a great segue into Come As You Are, which was just another one of these gigantic smash hit singles. Um, it, it was crazy. I mean, I, I know that I had listened to the Nevermind album, like, all the way through before, but re-listening this time around, like, almost every one of these songs I knew, like, right off the bat.
Yeah, I think there was maybe one song that I didn't recognize, but some of them started and I was like, I don't know this one. And then it got to the chorus and I'd be like, oh, this one, I know this one. And that's yeah, coming from somebody it's... who's never listened to this full album ever. Another of the aspects of the real like amazing quality of the songwriting is just how hooky everything is. It just stuck out to me, even the songs that I didn't know by heart had hooks that I immediately recognized. Yeah, it's crazy that the first three songs on this album are all like super, super iconic, well-known songs. I wrote in my notes that this is basically, now that's what I call Nirvana. (laughs) (laughs) So um, Come As You Are was supposed to be the big push for the label was gonna, you know, put all their money into pushing that song. And then uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit like took off and basically they were like, okay, we're just gonna step back and we're not gonna stop this. Like, obviously this is the single that is really reaching people. Um, but still, Come As You Are was still a big hit. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's interesting, too, because uh, as relatively cleaner and studio slick as the recording is, there are definitely still songs on it that are way more hardcore and more punk and really do kind of remind you of the earlier Nirvana and of their punk influences. Um, and I really love the song Breed on the album. Um, and it's just super upbeat and like just chugs along like a fucking freight train. Um, Breed is the one where I recognized it at the chorus. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, I didn't have any memory of having heard that one before. So that one was new to me, but I really did like it a lot. We did Jagged Little Pill before, and for that one, that was another album where I only knew the singles, and there were a lot of them, and they were really big hits. The non-single tracks really gave me a a new understanding of Alanis Morissette, and I actually found that I liked those songs a lot more than most of her singles. This feels like the opposite of that in a way, in that like I love all of the tracks, but it's like the big singles are like, if you want to know Nirvana, like those are the songs to listen to. Like or the non-single tracks on the album are great, but I don't think that they necessarily like, you're like, oh, I never considered that about Nirvana. Like I think I had a complete enough vision of them where I didn't necessarily need to hear all these other songs to feel like I understood Nirvana. I really like Lithium. I think that actually might be my favorite Nirvana song. Um, and Still I, just absolutely killer, killer song. Yeah, that's another single. Again, I never knew what he was singing. <laughs> he does have a tendency to mumble. And then I looked up the lyrics, and I can't tell you like definitively what the song is about. So lyrics-wise, that's not what speaks to me. I just really like how it goes fast and slow. It goes quiet and loud, and it just has that kind of complexity and inconsistency. It's just a great song to listen to. And I think it just, I think it's a standout in the album because it just sounds different from all the other songs, to me at least. I'm so lonely, that's okay. Shake my head, and I'm not sad. And just maybe I'm too blame for all I've heard. And I'm not sure, I'm so excited. I can't wait to meet you there I don't care I'm so horny That's okay, my will is good Yeah, yeah Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this one really get is it's a little bit more specifically getting you into Cobain's head, I think, than a lot of them. A lot of them tend to be more esoteric. And this one is pretty clearly about depression and the numbness that you might well, in the tools in the tools that you reach for to try to save yourself from it. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, also about like finding God. Yeah, and, like, I, there's definitely like a religious escape. thing. And I did try to like look up, you know, he did come from a very religious upbringing. So I know there's something there from from his religious um, family that is almost positive. And folks that he stayed with, you know, yeah, over the years. And uh, it seems positive about religion. It's it's like likening religion to lithium, um, like, a, like a medication, and that people <laughs> need it. Well, I mean, it's also like, because I saw on Wikipedia that it's also kind of a reference to how Karl Marx referred to religion as the opiate of the masses. Yeah. You know, so it's like in one sense... It is like a, a thing that people use to medicate themselves. Um, and in the other sense, it is also kind of like a false veil of the world. Yeah, I think um, it's both. But he, it's, I think it's both, and I think he intends it as both. Reading like his journal entries and stuff, he was not judgmental of faithful people, even though he wasn't religious himself. Yeah, I feel like this is the most Kurt cobain possibly song ever, just because it is full of contradictions. He says, like, I'm so lonely, but I'm not sad, you know, and it, it's just full of all these different things where it's impossible to really, like, nail down what he's feeling. But I think that's kind of the point. Yeah, um, so yeah. How- so this song definitely made me wonder if Britney Spears listened to this in 2007 before she <laughs> which song lithium oh okay says uh, that's okay I shaved my head and I'm not and just in general <laughs> it feels very Britney and uh, in that <laughs> no era. one has ever said that before <laughs> I think she should cover this I think it would be fucking hilarious I think it'd be great <laughs> I think all these songs work as covers like if you have an interesting interpretation like sonically I, that's why so many people have covered smells like teen spirit I think you're absolutely right where like the structure of these songs is so fucking solid that anyone can cover them and put their own spin on it and still have that song like work on its own. But it is also true, I think, that again, it really is one of those confluences of the people and the talent that I don't know if anyone else could have released those songs and made them hit that hard. Uh, in the Now That's What I Call Music episode, I got really mad at Fly Away. Uh, by Lenny Kravitz for having a yeah, yeah, yeah chorus. And that's exactly what is here. And I'm like, I'm fine with it when it's done like this. Like, <laughs> because like, you can tell that there is something behind the lyrics, whereas we talked about the lyrics of that song where it was like, I'm a bird flying. I like dragonflies. I don't remember the actual lyrics because they were not worth remembering. But Kurt Cobain can get away with it. Lenny Kravitz cannot. You hear that, Lenny? You hear that? So I thought we should talk about the song Polly because that is a yeah. very distinctive song. I mean, I think that... It's about saving yeah. the whales, right? <laughs> I didn't get that wrong. Yeah. I thought it was about polyamory. So I looked into the backstory of the song and it is in reference to a girl that was uh, kidnapped and raped by her um, captor. Um, and it's written uh, from the captor's point of view. Um, it's pretty depressing. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure what else to say about that except like, yeah, man, it's a it's it is a beautiful it's, it's a beautiful bummer of a song, and I never actually knew what it was about till this you know go around listening to it and reading up on you know what the actual lyrics were and the backstory behind it. Isn't me having seed 
Let me clip dirty wings Let me take a ride, cut yourself Want some help, please myself Got some rope, haven't told Promise you, haven't true Let me take a ride, cut yourself Want some help, please myself And this was definitely the first like consciously acoustic song that really broke away from distorted guitars, really broke away from heroic, mighty, gigantic drums. And I think it kind of hints at the reasons why like Unplugged would be such a special thing eventually. Because again, like you do strip away the drums, you do strip away those distorted guitars, and there's still that like really just haunting voice, beautiful melodies and lyrics. Yeah, this was... I mean, the song is very disturbing. I mean, we kind of learned about this when we were going through some of the now, that's what I call music songs with the way and like how these, I mean, this song doesn't ever really sound super upbeat, but you could kind of think, oh, that's a pretty little song until you realize what it's about. I grew up in Seattle where we have maybe a disproportionate number of these kinds of serial killers and cases. So like I was saying before, there's something about that that also seeps into you when you are from Seattle, that there's just kind of this malevolence there that I, I mean, I don't know what other people's experiences because I only have my own, but I feel like I really kind of understand his point of view in looking at a case like this that's, yeah, horribly depressing, but the way that he's examining it is so atypical of what you'd expect. You'd expect it to be a, a sad ballad, you know, celebrating the girl instead of, you know, something mm-hmm. from the point of view of the kidnapper and not in the text really damning him for it. It's just kind of like an exploration of this guy's psychology. Like a lot of this music, you can read it as apathetic if you want to. I don't think he would write this song if he was really apathetic about a girl being raped. You know what, for the record, like, I don't think that he is apathetic, but I okay. think that he writes from the perspective of a- apathetic people sometimes. I think he does that ironically, yeah, like in, in that he's playing a character that he's critiquing being apathetic by sounding apathetic. I think that's, I actually think that's really insightful and true. I think there's like, there is a layer of not irony, but a layer of very conscious judgment in that. Um, And I also think it's true that like in kind of assuming this character in this song, like it's almost like you, you take it for granted that he's being self judgmental because that's just, that's what immediate that's part of one of the things that immediately comes across as you listen to these songs is like the the first person to get cut is always himself um so yeah i, I and i do think it does kind of like set off the rest of the album in a really interesting way cuz there's a lot more thunder to come after that but it's a really captivating song it also i think it kind of highlights a really unexpected for me, um, aspect of Cobain and that he was really very much an ally of women and gay people because the song is basically an anti-rape song. Um, and that became like a much more explicit um, theme that he would express directly in lyrics. Um, and it's just really unique among, um, really among any era of pop songwriters. But like a 90s straight guy. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. very, it, I... I didn't see anything like in the documentary that like gave me an inkling like why he would have had these views. I mean, maybe that's 
maybe it's more random than that, but like a lot of times you're like, oh, well, maybe he had like a gay friend or something about sister women. got yeah assaulted. Or- yeah, and none of that. It, it doesn't really feel like that was motivated. And I think, again, that kind of speaks to him feeling like this voice of a generation, that he's speaking to things that kind of go beyond um, the scope of his life experience. I mean... Well, but like I was saying, like he had spent all his life recoiling against very patriarchal people and... Role model people who wanted to be role models in his life or claimed to be people in authority over him who were just shitty men and like living in that suburbia, you get you're surrounded by that at really every turn, you know. So it makes sense, like, whether he knew gay people or not, like, why he is uh, why being such an empathetic and very, very sensitive person, like, why he would feel that way. I agree it makes sense, but I also, like, think it's incredibly rare for some um, male who's, at this point, probably, like, 22 years old to to take it from, like, I don't like this, like, patriarchal thing to really, like, standing up musically for a young girl being raped or, you know, there's the other song that everyone is gay and in that he he does, he very much... um, I forget exactly what I saw about this, but he was also very um, anti-homophobic. Yeah. I think he'd written stuff in his journals that that said as such. And then, so, uh, just to go back to Polly for one second, is that there was actually a girl who was raped to this song. Like, a couple of guys raped this girl while playing this song, which is... um, It was like a news story? Yeah, and so he responded to it. He said that these guys were two wastes of sperm and eggs. And he said, I have a hard time carrying on knowing there are plankton in our audience. So, I mean, we talked in um, in Bloom that he's kind of critiquing his audience. And again, I think this helps me kind of understand what eventually happened to him and that, like, he's trying to get this message out of, you know, like, let's think about this and let's, you know, obviously not, do horrible things like this crime, and yet some of the people in his audience are inevitably going to go the opposite way and do this almost in his name. And I can understand from his point of view, like how that would be hard to take if you're trying to send out this message and someone kind of perverts it into the very opposite of what you were trying to get out. Um, I, I think another interesting song that's worth highlighting and worth listening to is Drain You. Um, it really is musically like a much more upbeat song and uh, like positive in the sense that it's it's you know it's mostly major chords. Um, and I always really liked it musically. Again, I actually didn't know that I knew it until listening to this whole album. Um, but yeah, this was one of the songs on their live album that I would have definitely heard in that live form first, but it, it's just really infectious and hummable. One baby to another says I'm lucky to meet you. Yeah, definitely. This is one that I'd also discovered. I might have heard it before, but really like listening to Nevermind in its entirety is where I discovered this one. And this is the one that's kind of been stuck in my head a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it's probably my favorite new discovery of theirs. I just love 
the lyrics of it because they're disgusting. <laughs> um, it, the point of the song, I think, at least as I read it, is basically that love is gross. Like if you kind of objectively look at what people who love each other do, it's kind of disgusting. Mm -hmm. um, like chewing your meat for you. I mean, that's obviously not something that literally <laughs> most people do. But I think it is kind of the idea of, you know, even like kissing someone is kind of gross if you really think about it. And this is the song that first kind of made me like wonder what the difference between punk and grunge was because the song sounded very punky because I think even though it's kind of bratty, it's also upbeat. And that's definitely not the sense that I get. Like Nirvana is very melancholy. And I think that's kind of the difference I was trying to highlight. The song also just reminded me of The Doors because I think Nirvana in general reminds me of the feeling that I had when I listened to The Doors, which I actually listened to more of The Doors early on than I ever really listened to Nirvana. But mm. just that when I hear their music, it feels like they're speaking to a slightly intangible experience that's almost inhuman. It's, it's kind of like they have some kind of wisdom that most people are not privy to, like that they're they're seeing things in a totally different way. And I'm not sure if it was this song or just the album in general that made me think that, but I really see The Doors and Nirvana as like two very, very singular acts. So let's transition into In Utero, an album title I can't pronounce very well, <laughs> In Utero. <laughs> um, so the the song that stands out the most to me on this album is Rate Me. Um, it was the second single off the album. First of all, the fact that a song called Rape Me was a single is kind of astonishing. Is this the one that's about saving the whales? <laughs> it's not about saving the whales. This is his None of these songs are about saving the whales. This is Kurt oh. Cobain's Orca Flow. I like this song for two reasons. First is that I love that Nirvana kind of didn't give a fuck. They named a song Rape Me. They were supposed to open the MTV, music, uh, MTV Video Music Awards in 1992. The show did not want them to play Rape Me, and they you know, went back and forth and they finally compromised and they said, okay, we're going to sing Lithium. And so the show starts um, and they announce Nirvana and then they start singing Rape Me. <laughs> um, and it only goes on for about a sentence or two and then they launch into Lithium. But he said that he uh, he did it because he just wanted to freak out the MTV execs. Yep. And it um, worked. <laughs> yeah, it worked. Um, and I, I like the song because it's very different in the fact that the lyrics are very blunt. In fact, he has said in an interview that the song was written to be blunt so that no one could misinterpret its meaning. Um, I mean, even without... This is one of the only Nirvana songs that I feel like I didn't have to, you know, analyze the lyrics, and I still did, um, but I could pretty much get what he was saying right from the start, and it really did feel like it was from the point of view of a woman that was, like, defiantly telling, you know, her rapist or assaulter, like, yeah, well, rape me. Like, you're not going to break me. Like, I'm th threatening you to try me. Like, it's it's a very powerful statement. Rape me. Rape me, my friend. Rape me. Rape me again. And I 
think it definitely matches what they did tonally on this album, which is really uh, recoil from and kind of react to uh, the cleanliness, as they saw it, of the production on Nevermind. Like, they went a lot more raw with this album. They spent a lot less time recording it. They worked with a producer and engineer, Steve Albini, who's really known for producing a lot of, like, Chicago hardcore punk bands um, and is himself a punk band leader in his own right for, like, 30 years now. They really consciously recoiled from their fame because with that fame came a lot more speculation on Kurt's private life, a lot more speculation on his heroin addiction that was kind of starting to come to the fore at this point. He was together with Courtney Love and their child was born before this album and there were a lot of rounds of press that speculated that their daughter Frances Bean was born addicted to crack or born addicted to heroin. Because Courtney Love had done drugs when she was pregnant. Because Courtney Love had talked about doing drugs when she was pregnant. So I think that really drove Kurt lyrically and musically to get as raw as he possibly could. And I think Rape Me in that sense is also a commentary on fame and what it, what it means to become a public figure right. mm-hmm. where every single aspect of you is just subject to the grossest speculation, even when the at the other side of that is is a literal child that you're trying to raise and trying to keep alive. Yeah, as much as I do think that it was written as, you know, and like to be very blunt, like a woman being raped, I think it I think you're right that it can be interpreted as how he felt being, you know, famous. Yeah, and and the album itself has like a lot of medical imagery because he was really starting to focus on his bad health. You can try to minimize the pain of his drug addiction only so much because it does factor so much into the pain that's in his lyrics and the pain that's in his songwriting. Actually, In Utero was actually the first Nirvana album that I bought. I still think it's kind of my favorite. It has like a lot of my favorite songs of his. I love Penny Royalty, which is a song about abortion. Like, Penny Royal Tea is a kind of tea that women used to drink to do abortions at home. Hmm. Um, and I didn't know that. Like, All Apologies, I think, is also just an incredibly beautiful, very strong, very self-judgmental song. I love that song. That's probably up there with Lithium for me. Absolutely. Particularly... Um, the acoustic version on their MTV Unplugged album. Absolutely. That was the number one song that I loved off that amazing album. And I actually think the acoustic version is better. I think actually almost all of the acoustic versions are better. Um, I don't know what that says about the recorded versions. I still like them, but I just, I think their MTV Unplugged album, it's my favorite album of theirs. What else should I be? All also wanted to highlight Heart Shaped Box, which was the first single off In Utero. 
It's it's filled with medical imagery, like, I wish I could eat your cancer when you turn black, and talks about the kind of visceral side of love and the visceral side of feeling attached to someone and really being in love with someone and feeling a kind of resignation that you can't fix what's wrong with them. Um, and I see that both as kind of a love letter to Courtney and kind of a self-regarding set of lyrics, too. Wish I could eat your cancer when you turn One more song that I want to highlight from this is Frances Farmer will have her revenge on Seattle. It's a relatively simple lyric, but it's another song like Lithium that just has like a great pop song structure. And it has one of my favorite choruses of his, which is I miss the comfort in feeling sad. It's so relaxing, hear that you're resting, never We keep going back to like complexity and the ways that things can be read multiple ways and feels like there's like a bit of ironic distance in that. But it's also like definitely facing a part of himself that I don't think he would have faced if he had not become a father. And like in the documentary montage of Heck, it goes into like how terrified he was and how much of a responsibility he rightly saw fatherhood as. It's just tragic because, like, it, it, he is a person in a relationship with his addiction. And by this point, it, he had found a partner who definitely didn't dissuade him from that. I, I believe that's called an enabler. <laughs> Some would call that an enabler. Yeah. I mean, she was doing it too. So. Um, and she was doing it too. And it was part of the basis of their connection with each other. This album, I think, has some of his tenderest and also hardest hitting songs but it also just is so sad to listen to not, not fun it's it's not it's <laughs> not, not, not fun super fun i agree i mean i think a lot of what you're saying speaks to why i don't like this album as much as nevermind like it, it is a lot sadder and i think it's also a lot more inwardly focused whereas nevermind had that kind of iconic voice of a generation where it really felt like it was speaking about a lot of people i feel like the songs on this one much more are speaking about Kurt Cobain's own experience. Like, I think a lot of songs on here are great. Um, I, I was very familiar with a lot of them from the radio because a lot of these were mm-hmm. played almost as much as the Nevermind songs, um, especially Heart Shaped Box. That's a song Absolutely. I heard. It has a crazy video. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of great songs on here. But in general, like that sense of like listening to something that's like almost magical, which is how I would describe Nevermind in a way, is just that it it feels so 
prescient and all-encompassing of an entire generation's angst that this album doesn't have that for me. Yeah, and I, d- and I definitely feel like the fat was trimmed off of Nevermind in a way that it's not on this. There are definitely songs on this that I always skip, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I mean, listening to both, I definitely like Nevermind more. Yeah, I skipped some on In Utero after hearing it like a couple, you know, after listening through it a couple times, I'd be like, okay, I want to just get to the songs that I like on this. Whereas Nevermind feels like a complete album that I listen from start to finish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then I think it's it's a good time now to kind of pivot to November of 1993, which is when they did their MTV Unplugged session that became not only a document that really shifted people's uh, judgment of Nirvana as just another grunge group. I think that was like one of their defining artistic statements um, and is the basis for why so many people loved him, uh, loved them. Like, I really do think that like the unplugged album uh, introduced Nirvana to a whole other like realm of fandom, even among people who wouldn't necessarily listen to grunge music like that. And there's a couple covers on that album. And that, that was you that know. was the other thing. I, I think it's I think it's important to highlight those covers. Um, one of them, which I'd love to play a sample of, is a cover of David Bowie's "The Man Who Sold the World." <laughs> That was a song that was really famous in its own right, just like Nirvana are stripping back their guitar distortion. Dave Grohl is only lightly thrumming the drums rather than beating them to death. It's a song that really just highlights the pop sensibility and also kind of the influence of glam rock, I would say, on on Nirvana um, and on that whole kind of subset of music. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I mean... David Bowie and Nirvana have very different aesthetics. And yet they both, Nirvana more so in Cobain's attitude and some of the lyrics, does defy gender norms as well as David Bowie obviously did, more so with his like style and just his, his overall look. But I find that really interesting that, that Cobain would choose... I mean, I think it makes sense in a lot of ways, and yet it's not necessarily, like, the first thing you'd think of, of, like, who's Nirvana going to pick to cover? Uh, for me, at least, hearing that version of it, oh, that is that is totally another piece of the puzzle. And it's so fascinating because Bowie didn't exist, like, in reaction or as a reactionary person. He was never like, oh, well, I do this because these other groups do that. Mm-hmm. He was only ever his own artistic force and like Kurt Cobain he synthesized a million different musical styles he synthesized like the baroque like piano pop and all of that um 
and his work was a reaction to things, but he wasn't uh, like consciously shunning any previous musical movements. So it was just really cool. And I also, for me, kind of explained some of the kind of destroying the gender construct in the way that Cobain likes to play with in his lyrics. I, I think it's definitely showing like one of their big influences who doesn't really get recognized as a big influence. Yeah, and it's just interesting to hear Cobain cover someone else because we've talked about like his lyrics are so him and they're just so like no one else could really write his lyrics the way that they do. So like you can tell that he didn't write this song. Like I'm looking at the lyrics right now and it doesn't really feel like Kurt Cobain wrote this song. And yet it's interesting to know that he felt something about these lyrics and then infused what we know is his own worldview into it. It's, it's very interesting. I'd like to talk about just the way that Kurt Cobain sings. He doesn't have a traditionally like good voice, but there's just something so raw about his voice that can go quiet, that can go loud and screamy, and it's almost like he's almost not hitting the note, but he does. That mm-hmm. it's there's just something so unique about it. Like if somebody tries to do a Kurt Cobain impression, it's like you know it's exactly so you know exactly yeah. who they are they're doing. Yeah. Like there's just something so so unique about his voice that I really do love. Yeah, I mean, the emotion that he's feeling beyond just like the lyrics that he's singing, you can hear it. You could, he could be singing in another language and you would still be like feeling that emotion. Because I mean, he it, kind of is because yeah. I don't often understand what he's singing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I, but, I, but I get it. It's like I get what the song is because of how he's singing it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, looking at the lyrics of his songs made me definitely realize I've been singing a lot of these songs the wrong way for a long time. (laughs) So Unplugged was a huge hit, and they set off in early 1994 on a European tour, and that tour kind of fell apart. Uh, He would just interrupt performances, he would cancel performances, he would look really bored and distracted during the shows. Following a tour stop in Munich, Kurt Cobain was diagnosed with bronchitis and severe laryngitis. And a couple days after that, Courtney Love found him comatose and rushed him to the hospital. They found a suicide note along with it. And this was the beginning of a string of suicide attempts. This was all taking place really during the culmination of him really losing himself to his heroin addiction. They eventually convinced him to go to rehab, but he climbed the fence of that rehab and escaped one night. Wait, for literally climb the fence? Yeah. Yeah, he literally scaled scaled the wall of his facility and he flew back to Seattle. And then a week after that, on Friday, April 8th, 1994, Kurt Cobain's body was discovered at his Seattle home. And he died of a, an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Which had happened days earlier, actually. And then they just didn't find him for several days. But he had been in the house for, like, three days. I think that... So, a lot of the things that I learned from that documentary mon- montage of Heck is that he claimed that he did try to kill himself earlier in his life as well. Um, yeah. After an incident when he was younger with like a neighborhood girl that he tried to have sex with. I won't get too into it. I mean, it's a whole long story. But also one thing I learned that I did not know at all before was that he had stomach problems his whole life. Yeah, and that's I, I think it's the, the time to finally bring that up. No matter what direct experiences of the types of pain that he wrote about in his songs, it was it's so clear to me, especially watching Montage of Heck and also just reading more about his physical experience of life as Kurt Cobain, that he lived a life that was just 
pain, like horrific pain. And I don't think he ever actually got a diagnosis for what was really wrong with him. I don't know if he had like Crohn's disease or one of those other kinds of things. He said uh, in Montage of Heck that he had had endoscopies that like checked out the inside lining of his stomach and that it was always inflamed. And that's usually the sign of like a chronic immune condition or a nervous system disorder. And that shit will wreck your life. I've had several relatives and many friends who've had conditions like that with symptoms like that. And until they got a real diagnosis and got the medication that actually works on it, like it makes your life hell. And he talks a lot about just having just crippling stomach pain constantly. And he literally, in the movie, you listen to him read a journal entry of the first time he tried heroin. And he's doing it to self-medicate because of this pain. Yeah, and yet also, like, I think there's a certain resignation that he had to being in pain. I don't know all the details of what he did, like, medically, but it didn't seem like he was really trying to cure himself. It seemed more like he was just accepting that he had this condition and that that was just kind of his fate in life in a way. So like I kind of alluded to before, I didn't really notice this at the time, but I think I purposefully avoided looking too much into Kurt Cobain's life. I never really learned that many details about his death. I knew he had killed himself. That was about it. And I knew just what I would soak up, but I would not actually like delve into this. Like I didn't watch Montage of Heck until this week. Um, I didn't see, like, Gus Van Sant's movie that's kind of based on his life. Last days. Like, the last few days, yeah. I never even, I don't think, read his Wikipedia page because I think I've always held him up on a pedestal in that, like, I kind of see him, as a lot of people do, as our generation's Jesus kind of figure. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because I didn't have that connection to him when I was growing up, but I think it's because I became aware of him the moment that he died, that he kind of took on this mythic figure that I think he is for a lot of people, but I think a lot of people have that as more rooted in their own fandom of the music. And I only have the experience of him dying and then becoming this like peripheral thing that was always with me when I was growing up because he comes from a place very close to where I grew up. I feel a very strange like kinship with the idea of Kurt Cobain. When I watched the documentary, I realized I don't have a lot in common with this man. I don't identify with him that much. And it was like difficult for me to reconcile that this guy is also the same like sort of mythic figure that I've been. Worshipping is not the right word because I don't like... But it's like an image that you venerate. Yeah, that is definitely like when I hear Nirvana's music. I even think that like listening to the full albums was kind of like a way of like not distorting it is because I only wanted those iconic singles. I only wanted that like perfect voice of a generation, all-encompassing vision of them. And I didn't really want to know specific details about his life. And I didn't want to see him as a very flawed human being or as a father or a son even. Like, I just wanted to, like, believe in this myth. And it was actually, like, kind of difficult for me to grapple with seeing him as a human being for the first time when we were doing this podcast. I kind of realized that I had to do that in order to say anything worthwhile about him. So what was it like watching Montage of Heck and researching and... Um, I I found watching it really unpleasant in a lot of ways. I mean, it's a very ugly documentary in many ways, like purposefully, I think. And I mean, it. I mean, the aesthetic of it is often very like in your face and It's almost and like a grungy. horror movie. Yeah. Um, and then there's also so much home video footage that's just like showing kind of uncomfortable moments. Like they're often naked, you know, and... High. Yeah, high. And it's just like... 
him literally like nodding off while holding Francis while they're giving her her first haircut. Like it's exactly it's fucking heartbreaking to watch that. Yeah, it's, it's really. I mean, this is not a person like based on that footage. I don't respect this person at all, and yet yeah. I respect this person so much as an artist that it's hard to like the person that I see in these videos. Like, doesn't seem like someone who would write the lyrics that I think are so meaningful and just so perfectly captured Generation X. And I think even today, like, I mean, they're as relevant to people today as they were back then. I mean, watching that documentary, I was just like, it's not that I don't like him. I just, I can't relate to this person. And maybe that says something good about my life. (laughs) Um, But I just, I couldn't, I couldn't relate to him at all. I couldn't, I felt bad for him, you know, a, a you know, horrible pain in his stomach, a horrible pain at home dealing with, you know, his parents breaking up and their you know love or lack of love for him and well dealing yeah with- and i mean it sounds like ultimately like what he wanted in his life really was a home like that was a thing that he really never felt he ever had like that's i think the movie very convincingly makes the point that like that's much of the reason why he made things so serious with courtney love why they had a child together which and she, they said she was planned like a phone, they wanted they wanted a family yeah and yet it was doomed because they were both on heroin and like i mean maybe they didn't necessarily realize that but i think part of him was smart enough to know that like this wasn't going to end well like what did he expect was going to happen from two parents who are constantly doing heroin with a baby. I mean, we, we watch train spotting. Yeah. <laughs> well, and again, I think it's just part of the complexity of it where there's a literal moment in Montage of Heck where he says, I'm going to get $3 million and then I'm going to become a junkie. Yeah. Um, oh, I think he like, had said that to Courtney. Right. Like she was so relaying we, something that he yeah, said to she, her. She's yeah, re- Courtney's in an interview, she's relating that he said that to her. For as much as he was conscious of the bullshit of fame, as much as he was conscious of the way that myth-making doesn't really do anything but hurt rock stars' lives, that he became every single bit of that, too. Yeah, I've never really liked that kind of cliche of like being destroyed by fame. I often find it kind of a weak argument for what happens to people because I think fame just enables you to be more yourself. I mean, this is obviously just my opinion, but I don't feel that anyone's life drastically changes from fame on the path that they were already going to go. Like, I think Kurt Cobain would have started doing heroin if he had never been famous. I mean, he had already done it before. I think he probably would have killed himself anyway, like at some point. I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, I've come to see fame as a social disease, and I think that famous people have one strain of it, and then I think that people who are fans and worship famous people have another strain of it. I agree with you in the sense that I don't think becoming famous fundamentally changes who you are, that I agree that it like amplifies everything that you are, but I also think it puts you in line to experience things and to make decisions that you would never feel empowered to make, that you would never... Um, that you would weigh the other consequences of. Because part of the aspect of the social disease of fame is that it teaches famous people that they're superhumans. And as much as he knew that he was broken and all of that, that ego part of it was there too. Um, Even if he didn't express it in the cock rock way of like, oh, look at me, the rock star. Like, I feel like that's where that apathy is kind of an expression of the ego. Where it's like, oh, well, fuck it. I was really interested 
uh, to learn from this documentary about how much shame and embarrassment were driving factors for him. Oh, absolutely. He was embarrassed by his family's divorce. Um, He was embarrassed about his fame. And I honestly think that that does seem to be kind of the main reason why he wanted to die was that he was just constantly like embarrassed by being human and being fallible. I think that knowing that he was a heroin addict was also embarrassing. He didn't really want to have to face the embarrassment. Obviously, that was going to lead to more and more situations where he was scrutinized and probably looked down on by the public. And being, I mean, he was probably embarrassed about being a father on heroin, you know, what people say about that and what that means about him and that he just couldn't take the fact that people would be judging him. And yet he was kind of creating these problems with his own behavior. As interesting as he is, there was so much weakness to him and his will and and that he just kind of, I mean, I don't like this as a cliche in general for all people who commit suicide, but he did just kind of give up and he gave up years before he actually killed himself. But he did like that. I'm just going to become a junkie when I make $3 million. I think unlike almost any other artist, he really had reached the pinnacle of how famous and influential an artist can be. I mean, we basically have said that he created an entire genre of music. I mean, basically, I think is single-handedly responsible for a lot of what we think of when we think of the years like 91 through 94. And that's all basically on this one man. And not very many people ever have that kind of influence. And so I... And I don't think, and I'm not sure that any one human being could withstand that much, even if they had started it in a completely well-adjusted way. <laughs> yeah, but, um, so, I mean, like, in a way, like, I, I definitely admire him for that, and I might be projecting this onto him, but I feel that he felt that that was kind of his burden. Like, this is why I kind of made that Jesus Christ comparison, is that he had this burden that he felt that he had to shoulder for the world, but it doesn't feel like he ever tried to get out of it or... Make he didn't say, I'm going to earn three, $3 million and then go to the best rehab facility in the world and become a, a better husband, father, person. He said, I'm just going to take it and go back to my heroin. Yeah, it was this yeah. cross to bear and he used it as kind of an excuse to not try. And because I guess not not trying is a way of avoiding embarrassment. Because if you if you put yourself out there and try and do something and fail, that's embarrassing. But if you are trying to do nothing, I don't think he was ever really an apathetic person, but I think he became more and more apathetic and eventually just kind of succumbed to that in that he cared so much what people thought about him that he put up this shell of not caring at all. So, of course, like, Cobain's death really did shape um, a lot of the ways that people take in their music. Um, And in the wake of Nirvana, it wasn't just that, you know, a lot of bands were kind of copycats of them. The members of the band themselves went on to make more music. Dave Grohl, the drummer, founded Foo Fighters. He recorded their first album in 1994, playing every single part and every single instrument except for one guitar part on one song. Wow, I didn't know that. He recorded it in two weeks. He had written 40 songs before, like during the course of Nirvana. Nirvana, um, and just never played them because he was so intimidated by Kurt Cobain's like songwriting amazingness. Um, but he really used it as an opportunity to kind of springboard and get himself into a studio and get himself kind of moving on from that. Um, but it's always, it's especially really clear on his first album, uh, which was called Foo Fighters, um, how much influence he took from both from Nirvana and from all the punk bands and stuff that that influenced Nirvana as well. 
There was a hit single from that first album called Big Me that had a really popular music video. Oh, the Mentos one. The Mentos one, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and that kind of launched Foo Fighters and launched Dave Grohl as his own, um, definitely much more mainstream. And just more, I mean, it's so funny that he was in Nirvana because I don't think the music is like Nirvana at all. I don't all. think his music's like Nirvana at all. I yeah, think his music's so much more a lot optimistic like Peter and... Frampton. It's, I think it's a lot more broad. I think it's yeah. a lot more consciously broad. But it does feel like this difference between like real raw angst of Nirvana and this kind of manufactured angst that I don't believe that every band that came after that was manufacturing it. But I feel like the industry kind of learned how to package something like Nirvana and learned how to make it a genre instead of it really coming from this natural place of one man's sound and his feelings. And instead, everything that came after that was kind of a reaction to Nirvana in a lot of ways. It's also that like Nirvana didn't fade away. Like he died kind of at the peak of Nirvana. And so... I'm sure record executives were saying, well, now there's this need that needs to be filled. So let's get all the bands that kind of sound like Nirvana or can be packaged like Nirvana. Let's let's get them out um, because all those fans want new music and they can't have Nirvana anymore. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily convinced that music would have gone the same direction at all if Kurt Cobain had lived. You know, like one of his quotes he said was that it's better to burn out than fade away or something mm-hmm. According to that, and yeah. that's exactly like that's what he wanted to do. But if he had faded away and he had just, you know, released a couple of mediocre albums where everyone, I mean, inevitably, anytime you release an album after something like Nevermind, people are like, oh, that's not as good. And then you're going to get diminishing returns. I mean, it's impossible to imagine exactly what would have happened in music, but I think that it created enough of a reaction that a lot of bands did try and fill that void. Well, and it's also interesting because they came in as disruptors as well. The yeah. album that Nevermind knocked off the top of the charts was Michael Jackson's Dangerous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's also like we can't imagine what music would have been if Michael Jackson had died younger. Right. But then it's also like, look at what happened the longer he lived. He never had a turning point. And Michael Jackson experienced fame and worldwide adulation in a way that I don't think someone like Kurt Cobain ever would have achieved. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just fascinating because, you know, it's like they, they, they came in roaring in that way. And then, you know, I, I think there is a degree to which someone like that who burns so brightly can't help, but kind of flame out on that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think like we were saying before, it's almost like it was planned. I don't think it was, but it's almost like that was built in. It's like you're going to have this amount of fame and then you're going to have this spectacular explosion at the end of it and have this legacy like that. It feels almost like a predestined kind of. It feels written. Yeah. Yeah. Like you couldn't write a better rock drama than Kurt Cobain's story, really. I had never listened to these albums before this week. Like you know, in a row. And I listened to them maybe like five times each. Um, And I thought they held up really well coming from somebody who has absolutely no, you know, history with Nirvana for the most part. I thought that they sounded very 90s, but also sounded timeless. Absolutely. And I think they held up really well. And I have a feeling um, a lot of the songs probably will go into my regular rotation of when I, you know, when I just 
make a playlist nowadays. Yeah, same here. I've really enjoyed discovering the tracks that I didn't already know from the radio and just guessing that they were Nirvana when I was a kid. (laughs) And I enjoyed, I mean, as much as it was difficult, like learning a little bit more about this figure that I've, that has been a part of my life for so long and in some way, usually a fairly small way. You know, he's never been someone that I consider him like my favorite artist. Now, I would say that Nirvana is definitely one of my favorite bands, but I, it's nice that I've actually listened to more of their music now um, because I had been avoiding it. And I, I, I find it really interesting to see the juxtaposition of Kurt Cobain's innocence and vulnerability with this darkness of his lyrics and just kind of this overwhelming, like when you listen to it, it's almost this crushing weight of like how sad he was and how just his disappointment and the fact that he really does seem to be observing people in a very interesting and original and astute way that I don't think anyone else has exactly his point of view. Like that, it's a very singular point of view. And I think it's very painful in ways to like look at the world through his point of view. And I'm sure it was very painful to do it as him. I mean, I'm I'm someone who's had depression as well and it's very different from his and my feelings are very different than his, but I also very much understand kind of that outlook. And it's painful for me to, looking at it through my point of view, through his point of view is like double depressing. Just like it's well, this I mean, it's like ennui and like the weight of the world and all of that. Yeah, like angst. I think is a good it's word. It's really for hard it. to sum it up in uh-huh. like actual words. <laughs> yeah, which is what you have to do on I a think podcast. The words you're searching for are an albino, <laughs> a, mulatto, <laughs> a mulatto, a mosquito, a mosquito. my, my hey. That is true. <laughs> well, I think there's no better way to end it than that. <laughs> That's all the apologies we have time for on the When We Were Young podcast. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed our time together or if it gave you some new wonderful music to listen to, uh, we would very much... discovered Nirvana for you, everyone. (laughs) You're welcome. We've heard of this tiny band named Nirvana. Uh, if you've enjoyed our, this trip that we've taken, we'd love it if you subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us your loveliest and most hyperbolic five-star reviews. Uh, if you'd like to follow us on our various social media presences, you can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash when we were young. Uh, wait, no, it isn't. Facebook.com slash show. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at show. You can email us at show at gmail.com. And you can contribute to our Patreon page if you want to help us defray the cost of a podcast we bring you entirely for free at patreon.com slash young. On the next episode of When We Were Young, we will lay eggs in your throat. <laughs> <laughs> we do that. We do. No. On the next episode of When We Were Young, <laughs> we will attach to your face. Face on an alien coming at you. We will be doing Alien and Aliens. The wonderful, fantastic Sigourney Weaver vehicle. Uh, but for now, thank you so much for listening. I have been Seth. I'm Becky. And I was Chris. <laughs> and now I'm just a puddle of tears on the floor. <laughs> Aww.